Okay, why don't we get started? If you haven't signed in and gotten your handout, you might do that. Again, you can answer tonight. We will see you soon. Today is just a set. Let's pray. Father, what a what a very great privilege it is to spend time in your word, talking about your word, learning about you. Father, what a great gift you have given us.
what's happening now in 2068 folks uh, we do not think that this is the appropriate place to be so with that if it's an eight i would lean down and guess that it's a They call tents, but they're really just kind of confines that they put over them and try to keep them dry. And uh, they've kind of gotten used to that. And so now they're beginning to ask questions along the lines of, in prayer for um, sharing Jesus with their neighbors and friends that they might have in a tent of meeting. Okay. So that's what's going on. It's a country that is in real trouble. There's no way you can say it. The first earthquake that they had was uh, 7.9, I think the seventh largest that it was and uh, since they started reporting earthquakes and they've uh, just potentially a bigger one's coming so you might you guys might want to get a handout there to find that if you need it so that's what's happening in nepal airport they opened it back up and uh then the rain hit So my one student said, they call you, uh, the term for respect is uncle, and it's like sir, okay? You guys might say, there's handouts over there, play buck system. So they say, so she wrote me, she says, Jim Uncle, pray that I won't be terrified because we're drowned, or if you're not sick, stay calm. And that just seemed kind of sweet to me. And uh, I don't know, I like stable earth. I think they have electricity back, so they're just going and finding place, probably internet cafes to plug in, whatever they can find for them. And several of them have gotten it, so because they're now back online, connecting online. So, yeah, it's a major trouble. Well, this is a class um, on how to study the Bible. I had asked the elders about a year, year and a half ago. When I first got here, I asked them, what's the criteria that you use for choosing to obey a command or not obey a command? You know, just because the Bible says to do something doesn't mean we have to do it. There's a whole lot of things that we don't do anymore. Uh, we've decided not to. There's a lot of things in the New Testament that we don't do. In fact, there's a lot of things side by side with commands that we do do that we decide not to do. So what's the criteria that you use for making that decision? And uh, they were honest and said, we don't really know that. We Honestly, we trusted our pastors to tell us that. And I personally feel I don't want that situation. Otherwise, it becomes a Jim Howard show. And I'm not that interested in the uh, Jim Howard show. Um, I need elders who are um, able to take any passage of Scripture I shouldn't say any, most passages of Scripture, I don't know any of it's going to be in it, all of them, 
and make sense of it and put it in today's context in a way that's life-giving and is a way that is consistent. Because here's what's happening in the world around us. <coughs> we say um, the passages that talk about women wearing gold jewelry, that's a contextual issue, cultural issue in the first century, so that we don't need to worry about that. And so the younger generation is going, oh, great, I love that criteria. Homosexuality is uh, a con- cultural issue of the first century we don't need to worry about. And so the church is, um, not only is it declining at an extremely rapid rate now in the United States, but it is uh, just being scattered with uh, what it's trying to make sense of. So we wrestled through that. We've been working on it off and on for a year, year and a half with the elders. And we devoted our last retreat to some of this. And so they asked if I would teach a class for those that are interested. So Mark and I have been developing a curriculum for our Wednesday night classes. We decided to make this just part of the standard rotation. Every couple of years, we'll circle back to this for those that are new to the church or that want to think more about it. So tonight is going to be a little bit more explanation because we have to get into the topic. And then after tonight, it's going to be a lot more hands-on. So I envision actually having tables and working on passages and giving you practice as we develop some principles. And what do you do with that? It's complicated stuff. Most Christians don't really know their Bible. They don't. They know a few select passages that we love to, to teach from up front. Um, they, they're great sound bites. They're very good to exhort people well. But they don't really know the story. They don't really know the, the real issues in this wonderful book. Very complicated issues. How many of you have ever read through the Bible? Let me just see that. Excellent. So you know what I'm talking about. Some you get into some of that stuff. I mean, it's interesting when you look in the when you when you chart out how God expresses His wrath. I'm not saying this is what's happening in Nepal, but when you chart it out in the Old Testament, the most common way He expresses His wrath is through floods and earthquakes. Right, and so uh, and it's always the same because you have turned it to away from me to other gods. I'm going to punish you, and uh, that's that's the most common way He expresses it through the prophets. So the Old Testament. So uh, um, thinking like a theologian, I scratch my head and say, is that what's happening here in Nepal? I don't know the answer to that. I know there's 13 temples and uh, seven of them are Hindu and all seven are demonic. So maybe. I, I don't know. I don't believe in coincidence. I don't believe in a deistic God who backs away and just lets it run. I think God is integrally involved in all that happens. So therefore, there's nothing by chance. Everything is by design. I don't know what that means uh, around that. So to get into this and start wrestling through these passages um, is is a fun task. I love it. And um, I love the passages that I just scratch my head and I can't figure out. When I went to seminary, I noticed that, like most seminaries, we focused on passages that were easy to wrestle with. And I started saying, well, what about this passage over here where we believe uh, genocide? God said to Saul, kill all the men, women, children, and animals. What about that one? Yeah, we'll come back to that. Let's move on to the next one. Those are the passages that, to me, differentiate Christianity from every other religion. If all we talk about are the peace, love, and happiness texts, we look a lot like Hinduism. It's only when you get into these very challenging, difficult texts that we begin to separate us from the rest of the religions of the world. And we're going to have to develop some principles that are going to make sense of this so that we can take passages and 
students. So uh, bring your passages to class that you have questions about. Any questions, fair game. I don't pretend to know all the answers, but I certainly love the courage of and the challenge of jumping into it and trying to figure it out. And um, we will play with these passages. The first question I want to ask, which is the first question I put in your handout, is what is the purpose of Scripture? So what would you say is the purpose of Scripture? Why do we even have it? what okay teach us about God okay basic instructions uh-huh how about the parts of scripture for after you leave here because they're in there too Okay. Oh, not everything. Okay. Listening to God. What else? Take take that a little bit further. What do you mean by that? It establishes a standard. Okay. We'll have to get into that and unpack that one a little bit. Okay. How about if I just say transformation? what else? How about if I say history of creation, including God's people, but including those who aren't God's people? Okay. to live by. Okay, so authority establishes authority. Hmm. Hmm. Examples of worship. Yep. Okay, turn to Luke 10. Luke 10, verses uh, 38 through 42. Using this as a criteria up here, tell me what's going on there. What's he talking about? What's Luke trying to communicate? 
Luke 10, 38. Controversial passage. I'm going to give you several here right up front. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, we've got a bunch right over here up here. So if you need one, let me know. I'll give you one. Okay, what's the basic passage about? Tell me the basic storyline. Nod your head. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. They're on their way somewhere, right? So they're moving. They're they're moving along. They're traveling somewhere. And then they stop by this house. We later find out in John these are good friends of theirs, very close friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Okay. And so what happens? Who's your setup? Hmm. Well, she's upset at Jesus. <coughs> That's who's upset. Go back there. So, how does Jesus' answer, how does that solve the problem? So what does this what does this fit into the criteria you just put up there? The idea. more about following me. Okay. Is um is Martha really upset because her sister's not helping her with her work? Is that really the issue?
Okay, you guys, good. Okay. Yeah, everybody except you was an optimistic. And what, that, what I mean by that is you brought 21st century cultural values and you transported them back into first century cultural experiences. So you just interpreted this verse along the lines of how you would feel if you were in that situation with what just happened. If we were to dig a little deeper into this, what you'd find is that um, Jewish rabbis and teachers did not allow women to sit at their feet alone. Luke is using very technical language here to describe what is happening with Mary. And uh, Martha is recognizing that he is committing, I believe, a cultural faux pas because that's not allowed. And so she's challenging Jesus. So in that context <coughs> that she's challenging Jesus because he's not supposed to do that, aren't you concerned that she's not over here with me? You're concerned that she, he, you're allowing her to do this, which is an embarrassment? So what does Jesus answer given that context, what does his answer say to you? And there's one of our first principles of interpretation. When Jesus speaks, he overturns culture. There it is. That's right. He just took an existing cultural value, I believe, and replaced it with something brand new and refreshing, which all of you women could love. You get, what's that? He absolutely was. You get to sit at his feet as well. And there's nothing to be ashamed of. That's going to cause, that's going to require, to require rewriting <coughs> cultural values, redeeming cultural values, changing cultural principles so that this becomes an accepted norm. As you move into the later New Testament, you begin to see all kinds of language beginning to appear addressing these same kinds of issues. For instance, women were not allowed to participate in the local assemblies. What we call church was not a special term. That just meant assembly in the New Testament. That's all it meant. So the men went and they had the rules on what they were, how they were allowed to act within those uh, assemblies, but the women never participated. So if the women, if the church began to invite women into those experiences, it would make sense that they would have to begin to explain to them what the rules were. So one of the very first principles we have to learn is that the Bible is a story of, of redeeming old, broken cultural values and replacing them with something new and fresh. In this context, what's new and fresh is what Mary did is now the norm. This is a good thing. Does that make sense? Okay, and believe it or not, the get to get to that place is not that challenging in understanding it. Bible study is not impossible. It is not even that complex. But it is work. It is fun work. So 
So as we move into this class, I'm going to copy, um, copy some resources for you that you can look at, break you up into groups and have you play with them and learn some about culture and start noticing what's going on in Scripture. But for now, you can start with a real simple principle. When God acts, He redeems. When He speaks, which is the same as acting, by the way, He redeems. So the question is, how is He redeeming? And what is He redeeming? So you can always start with that assumption. When God acts, He speaks, He's redeeming something. Okay, let me tell you what uh, what the purpose of Scripture is not. Just to begin to debunk some of our uh, stereotypes on how to do Bible study. It is not a list of rules. And that's not what the purpose of Scripture is for. Over 80% of Scripture is narrative, poetry, history. Only 15% of the Central has commands in it. So that's not the purpose. It is not a compendium or a collection, if you will, of true doctrines. That's not it. In fact, the whole science of the whole field of systematic theology is working through and trying to skirt those principles uh, that are important to us. So it's not a collection. You can't look at the, you can't go to the table of contents unlike some of your study Bibles would make you believe and say, well, I'm going to look up um, what it means to care for the poor and I'm going to go to page 37 and there it is. That's not what it's designed for. It's uh, not a means of exercising control. Now, we see, I see this all the time in our churches around the world. It comes out in language such as, well, the Bible says. You want me to use that language in uh, discussions? Who shut down the, who shut down the discussion? The two phrases I try to avoid are, the Bible says, in some sense of authority, or the Lord said so. Because those two things always create division. Almost always. And they're a means of exercising control. Because what happens is one person reads it one way and another person reads it another way. <coughs> so one of the things we're doing as elders, even as we're talking through right now, we're, we're in the middle of it. And you, you guys are all invited for elder meetings, by the way. But we're in the middle of a uh, probably a four-month discussion on same sex. What do we think about this? What are our governing values and rules? And let's be careful not to use what the Bible says. Well, let's not go there yet. Let's think it through. Let's, because I, I can assure you, for every almost every place you tell me the Bible says something, I can almost find an answer. So it's not used. It's not meant to be used as a means of control. Similarly, it's not a devotional aid. If you reduce the Bible down to that, you have weakened it. You have cheapened it. You have taken out its primary reason for existence. Those churches, by the way, who have heard God, if you will, uh, they tend to be those where division is most apparent. You don't usually hear that language in Scripture. It's very, very rare. If you look at the continuum of how God communicates, at one end of the continuum, He communicates with very clear language. Jonah, go to Nineveh. You can't mistake it. On the other end of this continuum, he communicates from a still, a, a silent part of a storm, what's translated in the earth, Bible as a still small voice, 
But in the middle of a storm, it's like the eye of a storm, there's a moment of peace. And in that moment, he whispers. Okay, Down here, it's easy to misunderstand what he's doing. Back here, you don't misunderstand it. You don't have anybody in the Bible saying, I don't quite understand what you meant by that, Lord. I might go to go, go to Nineveh. <laughs> Plain and simple. When you're down at this end of the communication spectrum, you have lots of freedom. At this end of the spectrum, you don't. It's called sin if you don't do it. That's why the authors and the prophets use language like, I am compelled to the point of death to do this. They were not given a choice. If you read Jonah carefully, in chapter 2, he rebelled against the Lord. And in Jonah 2, he they threw him into the uh, sea. He sank to the bottom, and it says, as his soul was departing, the lion came and stood God waited until he died. Basically, the take, was taking his life. He rescued him at the last second because he humbled himself. Else, otherwise, he probably would have died. That's the cost to the prophets for not doing what they're told. It was sin. Up here at this end, it's not. Down here, God uses this form of communication because he has to tell you to do something you don't want to do. None of the prophets said, sweet, I get to go to Nineveh. That's not what happened. So you have Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. You have Isaiah pleading with God. You have Jonah just out and out rebelling. You have Gideon placing test after test until he finally provokes God to anger. Don't test God, you know. We, we, we use the uh, fleece analogy. Well, read the rest of the story. God's getting pissed at him <laughs> for doing that. So he didn't want to do it. Lay on your side for 365 days. Oh, you're going to get thrown into a lion's den. Fiery furnace. Think about it. So down here, the reason why God uses this kind of language is because you, you need to get something done. You need somebody to do it who is going to take a faithful person and they're not going to want to do it. But they'll consent. Up here... That's not the way he works. Up here, his primary purpose is to help us learn wisdom and experience it. So we have all kinds of soft language to communicate here. The leading of the Spirit, we get counsel from people, all of that. I much prefer to be at this end of the spectrum, personally, than at that end of the spectrum. So when people say, the Lord told me, okay. I honestly have my doubts. Because the punishment is death if you don't do it. I like being down here. So it's not meant to be used as a means of control. Um, <clears throat> it's not primarily about imparting information to remind us of history. It does have history. It does have some biography. But it doesn't meet any of the criteria for history work, biography work, any of that. It's got samples and pieces of that, but that's not its purpose. It's also not a happy book or a magical book. If you just obey it, you'll be happy. You obey it, you may not be happy. That's Jonah. <laughs> there are lots of examples of Christians who were not happy. They were faithful. So it's not a happy book. You will be blessed, which is a very different idea than you will be hated. 
What a magical book. You just forgot all the laws and you obey them. Life goes well for you. It doesn't work that way. It really doesn't. It's a story. First and foremost, it is a story. Kyle, when we use the word authority of Scripture, what do we mean by that? What does that mean to you? Okay, it's the inspired Word of God. Hold on one second. Back up. Keep that thought. It is the inspired Word of God, but you actually don't have the inspired Word of God. You realize that, don't you? All of our doctrinal statements carry the autographs, which means the original documents are inspired, but you do not have. They don't exist. That's the grace of the Lord, by the way, because if they did, we'd be worshiping them instead of God. So we have to be a little more clear in our language of what we mean by inspiration. So let's move from there to what, what did you say? Okay, it's trustworthy. All right. But how does that carry authority? How does this story in Luke 10 carry authority? Say it again. It has transcendent themes, themes that move beyond, go beyond the story. Okay. When we use the phrase authority of Scripture, keep in mind that's a shorthand for the authority of God as communicated or expressed or exercised through Scripture. He has other ways of doing that as well. For instance, through our elders. When our elders pray about something and come to a conclusion that this is what's best for the church, that represents God's authority. Hebrews makes it very clear that they give an accounting to God personally for the way they steward and master steward. And so it carries some authority, doesn't it? So authority of Scripture has more to do with who God is, and the Scripture then becomes the medium that the authority is communicated. So then, if 80% of the Bible is not related to command, by the way, most Christians, when we think of authority, we think of command, right? So let's take one look, look at one. I gave you an example where there wasn't a command. Turn to 1 Timothy 2. Very controversial passage. I love it. Verse 8. What does it say? about the only person on Sunday morning that does that, Ron. I see you do that every Sunday, and you lead me to do it. <laughs> That's a command, right? Males, lift your hand. Yeah, but it's in the context of a whole series of five or six things that carry some level of authority, okay? It may not be a Jew comparative, but that's okay. It still carries some level of authority. Nobody would look at this and say, I don't think he really means that. 
right? So when we think of authority, we typically think of the commands that tell us what to do, right? So why don't we do this? There's about four or five guys on our church that did this. Okay, look at verse 11. <coughs> or verse 12. Why do we have no problem assigning authority to 11 and 12 when we really don't assign authority to 8? First Timothy 2. But we, but but I think most of you would agree that our Timothy is to assign more authority currently to verses eleven to twelve rather than eight, right? But you never hear. I've never heard a sermon. You may have. I've never heard a sermon on how important it is for men to raise their hands. we just naturally do it. By the way, I think verse 12 is one of those places where we neither obey nor disregard. We actually contextualize or culturalize it. We shape it so that it fits our culture today. Let me, uh, you look at verse 12 while I read it. I'll read the contextualized version of 12. I do not permit a woman to teach the Bible or to assume authority over a man in church. Timothy 12. Is that what it says? Oh, we're okay with women in spiritual things and employment places and any o- many other educational wants, right? Teaching math. That's not what it says, right? What does it say? Nothing general about it. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, period. Oh, you mean by that? Okay. Across the board, in every category. So here's an example of one where we have shaped it. Appears to me to be. Okay, do you get my point that authority is often, for most of us, connected more with commands and imperatives and things like that? How does a story have authority? If most of the Bible is narrative, poetry, history, stories, all of that, how does a story have authority?
we actually use this all the time in our culture when we tell uh, when we tell um, fairy tales or stories. We talk about the moral of the story. What does that mean? A story is told for a reason, isn't it? To communicate a truth that is your untruth. So I'm, I'm giving you some words, John, to help you with that. Because it is transformative. St- we are told stories for a reason. Stories are the most powerful way to communicate truths. I know full well that when I get up there and preach, that you're going to remember, if you remember, if, and that's a big if, even a week later, what you're going to remember is a story that I told. That's what you're going to remember. I know that. Stories are the most powerful way to communicate transformative truth. Does that make sense? I'm doing this. I'm starting to lay some foundational principles for where do we go. And our tendency is to look for the rules in the text. And I'm, I'm going to begin to suggest that our, ten- our tendency should be to look at the storyline of the text. Because the storyline is where the real authority is carried through. So I told you some stories of Nepal, and, and several of you were gasping. It got more simple. Stories become very, very important. So, what is the purpose of Scripture? Let me give you some thoughts. Next question. <coughs> Two general ideas, all right, and I'm going to explain them. One is, it's the primary medium, if you will, for God's authority to be communicated or mediated or brought into this world. Primary pur- purpose of Scripture is that is how God brings the truth into the world of who He is. The kingdom of God is mediated through Scripture. It's brought it's brought into the world through Scripture. How else would He have it? Otherwise, God would have to communicate to each one of us directly and individually. Okay, so you see that. So the primary purpose of Scripture, there's two primary purposes. The first one is that it's the way God brings his, he brings, he introduces himself, if you will. It's the way he brings his, his expectations, his love, his, his idea of what's happening uh, into the world. At the same time, the second one is that it generates a sense of calling, if you will, within us. We're drawn to it as we begin to hear the story. So let's talk about the first one. It's the primary medium for his authority to be brought into the world. Um, he brings his kingdom and his presence on the earth. His purpose is not just to save humanity. That's a very myopic, a very narrow, one-dimensional view that the Western church has largely focused on. We've pretty much whittled uh, evangelism down to Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. It's, you, don't, you don't see that language in any evangelistic sermon in uh, Scripture. We have the four spiritual laws brought about by evangelism explosion. Thank God that's disappearing off the scene. Because where does it start? Where do the four spiritual laws start? What's that? Yeah. People are sinful, right? You can read every evangelistic sermon and you'll never hear them say that. 
that's not part of it. You know where they start? Let me tell you about the God who created all this and his love for you. That's where they start. Half the time, they never even get to sin because people are already aware of that. And so they're aware that everything is not right, right, that things are broken. And so when you read through Acts and you look at the evangelistic sermons of Peter and Paul, they most of the time start with, let me show you the true God, the one who made all this good, who cares about all of this. So I've actually shared the gospel on many occasions without ever talking about the cross. It's not required. Look at Acts. What's most important to us? To introduce them to the one true living God. That's what's most important. His purpose is not just to save humanity. It's to redeem all of creation. All of it. Paul even goes so far to say in Romans 8 that all of creation is is in the throes of uh, angst. They're waiting for us. All of creation is waiting for our redemption. We're the obstinate, pig-headed ones. All of creation, that's the story. God made this entire creation, and he wants to redeem all of it. He wants to redeem the trees. This morning at Arnau, how many of you guys were there? We, we looked at the rope, right, made of trash bags. What did you say? Redeeming plastic bags. Yeah, Mark had a rope that he bought in Haiti where the lady took a Target bag. He said Walmart, but we actually looked at one Target somebody put on there. Took plastic bags, shredded them, and turned it into a rope so that they could use it, use it for their beasts, their, their animals who do work for them, beasts of burden. And uh, <coughs> redeeming plastic bags, taking a bag that had no longer had the purpose and giving it a purpose. Rescuing. And so the storyline of Scripture starts first and foremost with the idea that God is both the lover and judge of the creation. He's not an absentee landlord. Our, our country was founded on the principle, the deal, that you put, built it and stepped back. That is not the case at all. I reject the, uh, I reject the founding father's theology. We are not deals. I'm not a deal. It reveals the mission of God. The entire creation reveals it. Look at Revelation 22. Let's go back and look at the very end of the story. Okay. In Revelation 21, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth had passed away. We are in the new creation. Got it? Make sense? We are now in the new creation. We are populated the new creation. We've gone through glory. We've made it through all this stuff. And look at the language that's in here. Um, it says, let's see here. Um, chapter 22. The angel showed me the river of water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are what? For the healing of the nations. But I thought the nations would have been healed by this point. This is already in blood. Ooh. Ooh. What do you do with that? 
24, back up to 21. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Remember, he's in the new city now. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and they will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. But wait a minute, we're in jail. I thought it would have already happened by now. But you can go on down through here and see this one after the other. It's not magic. It just doesn't just click like that. God is in the process of redemption, the key word is process. It's something that happens over time, and this is the story. What happens in the New Jerusalem is that the sin nature is eradicated so that the final healing work can begin. The nations will have to be healed. We have hurt one another in desperate ways. So the sin nature is dealt with, and we learn what it means to truly forgive and to move vulnerable. So we have this ideal as Christians that we die and go to heaven and it's fine. That's not the picture that's presented here. It's not. The picture is now we start to learn. Now we begin the process. So the scriptures mediate God's presence. They deliver God's presence. They express his presence. They bring his presence to the world. How else would you know about it? If you didn't have the scriptures, you would not understand what God is doing. At the same time that it does that, it gives us a sense of identity. It gives us a common confession. It gives us a way of practicing. So the moment we read scripture together, we read the story of of God who loves us and died for us on the cross, and, and we all believe, we now have a common identity. We have a common confession. And therefore, as we begin to read how these early Christians worship God, we develop a sense of how we're going to worship God because we want to. Does that you get it? See what I'm saying? But I just recognize why I've been blank. But what do you think about that? This will be important as we look at how to interpret passages. exercise through scripture. Mm-hmm. So when we tell the story, okay, forget just for a moment the commands. Do this, don't do that. Just ignore that. When we tell the story of this incredible God, we begin to draw people to the Lord of who he is. It does include, by the way, the fact that you are desperately broken and sinful. No question about that. That's just not what they led with. That occurs in their epistles after the church is formed. But when they lead them to Christ, they're telling, they're saying, let me tell you about the most amazing God. You serve all these gods. I know the one true God. He created all this, and he created it for you. That's how much he loves you. And people are going, wow, I've never heard this before because none of the other gods did this. And so they drew them to the Lord. After they formed the church, he would write a letter back to them and explain to them the theology of what happened. So it makes sense. So when we start telling the story, by the way, that's the purpose of church on Sunday. Because everything we do tells the story. So 
So the primary purpose of scripture is it's God's it's God's primary way of revealing his authority in the world around us while concurrently or at the same time to be redundant and therefore as the script almost got it <laughs> at the same time to create identity for us. If you believe in the risen Lord Jesus, you share a confession. You have an identity in him. And therefore it begins to establish practices of practice. What do we do with this? How do we move out in a way that celebrates what God has done and honors the Lord? So I gave you the example in Luke 10. <coughs> By the way, in 1 Timothy 2, uh, you let a woman remain silently with all respect. That may very well have been a uh, early rabbinic code for how the men had to learn. Okay, so the great teachers of Israel, Gamaliel was one of them. They had their kits of who was going to be a disciple. To be a disciple of a great teacher, um, you had to have been raised from birth with that in mind. They were usually chosen between 14 to 16 years of age. They would have memorized whole portions of the Hebrew Bible. They would have been schooled from the very beginning to become a disciple. Um, and that's who they chose. They typically chose the upper middle class because they could. Paul's a classic example, raised from birth. Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Saul of Benjamin, Jew of Jews. He, he, he talks about all of that. Uh, and that's how they did it. So the, so the teachers would come along and say, you know, I'm going to look through the whole nation. Show me the best and the brightest. There's a guy way out there. That's a Gamaliel. So they'd collect them, get them together, and they say, here are the rules. One of them is you have to learn silently, submissively, with respect. Why? Because I'm a rabbi and you're the student. So what does it mean when Paul says, let a woman learn silently with all respect? What does that mean? Right. It's bringing women up, not putting them down. It's, it's the opposite in the first century culture. So we hear the word submission from our 21st century cultural values. They hear the word, let a woman learn. Sweet. So if Jesus is the first one that actually models it, Paul may be the first one that criticizes it. So that's not a, a negative passage. That's a passage that's meant to cause all of us to jump up and down for joy. You see it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. The next thing I have down here, B. The story was told in order to generate a sense of calling and identity with the people. That's another reason why we tell the story. It uses a variety of genres. It uses poetry. It uses story. It uses parable. It uses allegory. It uses narrative. It uses history. It uses imperatives and commands. It uses some biography. It uses apocalypse, apocalyptic literature. It's a whole variety of genres to give us the story of how God relates to us. If God only gave it to us in propositional language, it'd be really boring. But he tells the story in a whole variety of ways, in, um, uh, in ways that we can grasp. Some of us grasp poetry easier than history. Some of us grab narrative, grasp that easier than prophecy. Some of us, prophecy is what attracts us. We're all built differently. And so God uses a variety of genres throughout the scripture 
to tell the basic story of who this one true God is and how he relates to us. In other words, it was written to shape and direct us, to move us along a certain path, if you will. So when we get into some of this poetry and stuff, we're going to be scratching our heads. Some of you go, wow, that's the most beautiful message I've ever heard. And others are going to go, that doesn't make sense to me at all. (laughs) That's what it's designed to do, to capture the way God has made us. It means it is the means of God's action in and through us. When we learn about God, we can't help but change. When we learn about God, we're stuck with only two options, transform or rebel, right? Those are our only real choices when we hear the truth about God. So all along the way, this scripture is calling. It's just quietly whispering and calling your name. Come this way. Come this way. Don't go that way. Come this way. Don't go that way. Because culture is always going to lead you off the cliff. Always. We can count on it. 100% of the time, it'll lead you off the cliff. But what the Bible does is God begins to speak. He begins to turn in a different direction away from that cataclysmic, tragic end off the cliff. So he's going to be whispering your name every step of the way as you read Scripture. Do you want to be like this person or not? You're going to be asked that question. I think um, I think Scripture serves three primary purposes. It reminds us that the God that we worship speaks. This is important. It reminds us that He speaks. Therefore, what he says will happen. It's called speech act. It's a great one of the great gifts of postmodern philosophy to the study of biblical studies. Speech act theory. When God speaks, it happens. And that's the way we operate. And that's the way we communicate in each other's lives. When we talk to one another, things change, culture. So it reminds us that God speaks. Second thought, second uh, primary purpose is that it is the means, the primary means by which we are transformed through the renewing of our mind and instruction. It's the primary means. The Holy Spirit is involved in helping us make sense, but the Holy Spirit uses the Word as the primary means of helping us. Keep in mind, if you did not have this book, none of this would make sense. What we do in church. And number three, it reminds us that the God we worship is the one true God who, through the resurrection of Jesus, desires to be known. He wants to be known. He desires to be known. I've told many people, if you're having trouble with a friend, you can't have the discussion about Jesus, take them for a walk. Psalm 19. All of creation shouts the glory of God. Let God's hell's angels. What better place to to take them for a walk than up here, right? Oh my goodness. No offense to Kansas, but we could use Kansas. <laughs> I've only passed through there and I don't know much about it, but it sure looks flat to me. With a bunch of corn <laughs> or wheat. Sunflowers. <laughs> 
When we affirm the authority of Scripture, let me close out this first section with this. When we affirm the authority of Scripture, we are, um, we are attesting to fresh ways of viewing a broken world. Because the Scripture is the only place you can go to find out what an incredible loving God is doing in this broken world. So when we affirm as a church the authority of Scripture, what we're saying is, this is the best news on the planet, right here. Sadly, it doesn't mean that for many Christians. It's often associated with a, a lifestyle, an emphasis on behavior. But this is a behavior toward others. When we affirm the authority of Scripture, we are attesting to a new and fresh work of God in the world around us. And that's very exciting. So let's go to the second one. What's the purpose of Bible study? Well, I'm beginning to laying foundation before we start getting into these passages, okay? So what's the purpose of Bible study? I would argue that it's, uh, it's a way of life. Theology should be a way of life for us. It's not something that we should study. We should all be theologians, every one of us. Okay, when you look out the window, what do you see? Nature? What else? Wires? You bet. Historical building, a schoolhouse. Clear sky, clouds, still bright out, okay, see light, food bank, okay, what else, creativity, okay, now with that, let's move into thinking theologically, think theologically, what do you see, what do the wires represent, fire jeans and zombies, can animals do that? You can find God on a corn crib. Can animals produce corn? It's a distorted, broken, horrible thing to do. But guess what? It reveals a creator God. Fire gene and zombies. What about the sky and the clouds and the colors and all that? Where does that tell us? You mentioned creativity. What does that tell us about God? What's that? Okay, so sustenance, it tells something about the way he cares for us, provides for us. What does it say about creativity? Praise God, there's only one of you, Ron. <laughs> Praise God, there's only one of me. <laughs> yeah, creativity, unique, right? Thinking, theo thinking theologically, every one of you should be theologians. So what the Bible teaches us and the purpose of Bible study is to become theologians. And I mean that in the good sense of that word. We think like God. We understand the way God views this world around us. And we understand that he's doing something incredible, fresh, new, delightful. It's not just the pursuit of truth, nor is it just to learn how to live. It's the creation of formation. We're being formed. That's why we do Bible study, is so that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, and therefore we become different. We begin to change. Or to be a little more technically accurate, we become better at who we are. So you become, so 
become a better gift. I become a better woman. Molly, you become a better Molly. That's what happens. You start getting formed in Christ, which, by the way, what that means is you're discovering a new and compelling way of understanding the world and living life. That's what Bible study is for. It's to teach you the truth. It's giving you a glimpse, if you will, stepping into the throne room and seeing this world from God's perspective in all of its messiness and in all of its glory. Because it is still very good, (coughs) even in its messiness. It's making sense of what we experience. We tend to think, and this is an older model of the Bible, as you open up the Bible and it's a rule book and you follow the rules, you're okay. Think of it this way. The Bible comes in from the side and makes sense of everything. There's a uh, Albanian physicist, Michael Polanyi, um, who wrote a book on how to ride a bicycle, physics of riding a bicycle. His last chapter was, now that I've explained the physics of riding a bicycle, you know no more about riding a bicycle now than when you started. The only way to learn to ride a bicycle is to get on skinny knees. And his point is that the deepest truths and values in life can't be taught. They have to be experienced. How, how in the world could you explain um, what a good marriage is to a person you haven't had? It's just not to be neglected here. So the values that actually drive us, we experience them in life. It's what, it's what many years ago, uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you guys remember this, the, the philosophers and child the parenting experts would say um, our values are not taught to our children, they're caught by our children. If you tell your child up until the day he goes to college, he or she, every day of their life that integrity is important. Every day you tell them that, but you don't live a life of integrity, what's going to go next? It's your example. Our values are caught. So the Bible doesn't teach us values. We learn values in life. What the Bible does is come in alongside and interpret that story and make sense of it. That's kind of what the purpose of Bible study is. So reading and interpreting the Word of God, that's what they call hermeneutics. Okay, reading and interpreting the Word of God and helping the church be formed in Christ and compelled to live it out. That's what we call theological thinking or living. That's the major task of the church. That's what we are to do. It's not about passing facts. It's about telling the most compelling story in all of creation and doing it in a way that that you want to live life pleasing to the Lord. tried to capture this with the idea of theological method. You have a a blue thing there. Hermeneutics, the interpretation of Scripture, quite honestly, is where many of our pastors, myself included, this is where we were taught to spend our time. So up from the pulpit, up front, we're taught to interpret Scripture. And it took me a long time to realize that that's not where the gold is. I'm convinced, if you gave me three minutes, I could convince all of you that 1 Corinthians 11 says that women should wear head coverings. Or 1 Timothy 2 says men should raise their hands. Or 1 Timothy 2 says that women should not uh, teach over Paul's authority. But what I haven't been able to do, what I haven't done, 
is to help you cross the bridge into life and say that that still applies today. Why is it written that way? If we go back to the basic premise that God is redemptive, then every place I go in Scripture, I'm assuming that God is redeeming something broken. And if you could get back to that side of it, you would, you would jump with excitement at what God has done. So I mentioned I used Luke 10 as an example. Mary and Martha, right? And I reframed the story a little bit. Wasn't that ex- more exciting for you? Because it put you on this side of it, and you saw Jesus is doing something wonderful the world hadn't seen before, ever. But we get hung up in language. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, right? And that sort of thing. And then we get that, we got that passage completely backwards. And if you're nice to me, maybe by the last night we'll take that passage apart and uh, bring in all the cultural and the redemptive pieces and theological pieces and make better sense of it. Because it has got to be one of the most amazing, wonderful passages in Scripture that's life-giving. But yet we don't read it that way. As I think one of you said over here, I don't understand how it's a mission text. When you put it in the context, you do. So hermeneutics is what we do to interpret Scripture. But how do we get to genuine faith? And by genuine faith, I mean that which compels us to live this way. Right? Why is our divorce rate 50%? Good night. We should be ashamed of that. We are no different in the world. If we really believe in a compelling message, you know what the, you know what the message is in Scripture on divorce? It's pretty simple. Don't do it. And under the new covenant with Jesus, he becomes, is one of the few places where he becomes more restrictive than the Old Testament. Don't do it. You know why? Because you now have the Spirit of God. That means that you, for the first time in history, can sacrifice for someone else whether you like them or not. Don't do it. It is your primary message of the gospel of Jesus. It's your primary message. You blow that. You've got three steps where you get up to God to do it. Don't do it. If we're going to live like redeemed people, I'm not sure we're going to have a lot left. So how do we get to genuine faith where, where we read these passages and we say, yeah, this is... This is important. That's what's in the middle. The whole process of learning to think theologically and apply theological principles to our interpretation. So, most Christians in the churches today can tell us that they think the Bible says divorce is wrong, whether or not they agree with it, based on their life. Most of us, most of people today can most Christians can, they would tell you that they think the Bible says same sex is wrong, but they have no idea why. They don't really know why. And that's what we got to figure out. we got to start figuring out that level of thinking. Because if you get that piece of it, you will never understand. You'll run to Joel if you do. So that's kind of how I described it. And this whole process I labeled theological muscle. So that's kind of what's behind that drill in there. I think this is what provides the foundation for developing effective principles of living holy lives. First Peter, be holy. You know what that means? Be different than your neighbor. Decision making, Second Timothy 3, it's profitable for us making good decisions, for identifying truth for every generation. Titus 1.9, the church is responsible to guard this truth. What is it we're guarding? We're not guarding behaviors. 
regarding the most important truth about how to cleanse away the idols. He goes on. On and on and on. So, how does the Bible guide us through complex situations? How does it do that? What happens where the Bible doesn't give us a, a clear directive? Which is most of the time, by the way. Doesn't tell you where to park, what clothes to buy, what food, you know, all that kind of stuff. What about where situations um, that we face are radically different than those captured in the Bible? The Bible doesn't talk about one yet, and yet we're faced with it today. So what do we do in those cases? What about where conflicting values are involved, either conflicting within Scripture, okay to eat off with idols or you shouldn't eat meat off with idols, or conflicting values between us and them? Okay? Particular racial women, you own them. But we have a conflicting value there. But yet that's a value, one of the values of the Old Testament. How do we make sense of that? We have conflicting values. What about when decisions are time sensitive and we must make them without having all the facts? What do we do then? We tend to treat the scripture as if we're a court of law. So we don't confront people because we don't have all the facts. What if we're wrong? So we're not a court of law. Let the court be the court. Let's do what we do best. What we do is redemptive. I went and sat down with a couple and said, I was talking to my staff and I was asking, are there any marriages in trouble that you know of? And they said, well, this one might be. I said, okay. So I went and had coffee with a couple and said, I, I just, I sat back. There might be a chance your marriage is in trouble. And I, I don't really know what to ask. Is everything okay? <laughs> one of them said, I didn't think anybody noticed my first choice. And they said, no, it's not okay. All right, what can we do to help? How can we help? There's no way till we have evidence. By the time we have evidence, we're too late. We're not a court of law. We're to be redeemers, rescue people in trouble. What about, uh, uh, well, that's enough. Next question. So this raises the question of what is the relationship between hermeneutics, theological thinking, and theological method. Hermeneutics, the interpretation of Scripture, which is what a lot of you have been trained, by the way, that should lead to good theological thinking if it's done well. That's where we focus on the facts, that kind of stuff. And then correct theological thinking leads to living out our faith in very real ways. In any kind of context. By the way, uh, we'll come back to this later on, but the New Testament books, they represent letters written to different ethnic groups. You realize that? Corinth is written to the Jews. Titus is written to the Isle of Crete. Romans is written to Italians. Prison epistles are written to Asia Minor, Turkish people. So what we have is we have the most incredible story of how to move out within et different ethnic groups, allow them to maintain the ethnicity, while at the same time learning what it means to, to live out their faith because of this compelling story. It's remarkable. And so you see Paul and Peter taking these principles of what God has done and then moving into a group culture with it. So in the group culture, they say the young widows should remarry. But then when they get to the Turkish culture, they say young widows should stay single because they're having families. And so our job, I told the elders, is to take it to Summit County. Summit County's not this far from the Bible. 
how do we bring these wonderful theological truths to bear in front of families in a way that's attractive and compelling? By the way, we're going to talk about that this Sunday. The good news of the Lord should be compelling, should be attractive, not the opposite. So that's what that blue thing is designed to, to show you. All right, let's jump into part one for just a moment. And let's talk about how to interpret the Bible. Well, effective theological method begins first and foremost with effective Bible study. There's no question that that's the beginning point. If we don't start with the Bible, we're going to end up all over the place. And if it's not effective, we're still going to end up all over the place. (laughs) So I'm going to give you my perspective on what effective looks like. And uh, this is the result of reading all of the great minds and figuring it out and living life and having 10,000 conversations with people that are trying to figure this out as well. What does that look like? Picture a three-legged stool. That's why I gave you the imagery there. Okay? All three legs are needed for healthy Bible study. All three. If you don't do all three, you're going to end up in a bad place. You're going to end up in a place that you're not very comfortable with, or I should say the people around you are not comfortable with. That's usually what happens. The first leg is what we call historical, grammatical analysis. Explain that. That's your basic Bible study that you get in uh, when you buy a canned Bible study. This is what you get. This part of the Bible: historical, grammatical analysis. The second one is cultural analysis. So just write them down, and then we'll talk about each one. Cultural analysis. Third one is missional or redemptive analysis. Now, what do those mean? Historical grammatical analysis, B. Let's talk about that just for a minute. This is what most Christians think of when they think of Bible study. This is asking the basic question of grammar, context, genre. What does the Bible say? That's really what we're looking at here. The basic stuff. We often don't know what it means. We can't help, we'll come back to this, we can't help but interpret every step of the way because we're meant to communicate with each other. So when I ask you the question, you all use 21st century principles to make sense of a first century verse, pretty much. That's as natural as could be. That's okay. Just recognize that that's what's happening. And then do your best to stop it. Okay? (laughs) Just recognize it. It's looking at the basic facts of the Bible. It's answering the question, what does the Bible say? It does not answer the question of how do we apply it or should it be applied. Let me give you some examples. Uh, I already mentioned a couple of them. In 1 Timothy 2, women wearing gold jewelry, braiding of the hair. In fact, those are the ones I'd use. 1 Timothy 2, men lifting their hands in worship. Those are examples. Okay? It says pretty clearly, again, I'll come to the woman, talks about his authority. Two plus five is four, deals in arguments and unsettles. And a man should lift their hands in worship. Those are pretty truthful statements on its own facts. All right? So we can all agree on that. That's what it says. <laughs> I, I bet we can't agree on what it means or how do you apply it or should we apply it. Or is it even worth applying? Or what does it mean? How in the world does it communicate this wonderful news of the gospel to a broken world? All right, cultural analysis. Obviously, I'm not going to spend much time on Sober Grammatical because that's where you're comfortable with it. Cultural analysis. This area of Bible study analyzes the cultural background 
in which the passage occurs. Now, I took the two passages and I applied a cultural truth to it, which changed the meaning for you guys. So when I said to you that uh, that a, a Jewish teacher or rabbi did not permit a woman to weren't allowed to sit at their feet that was a cultural faux pas didn't that begin to shift the, the story a little bit all of a sudden it starts to make a little bit more sense how Jesus is pushing boundaries if you will see what cultural analysis can do so we're going to have some practice on that one coming up a core theological assumption is that God speaks in order to address broken cultural values. That's one of our core assumptions. Why else would God intervene in a broken world? So when God decides to move into our lives through the Word and through the Spirit, He's doing it for the purpose of fixing something that's broken and leading us to Him and to His centers of excellence. So, Culture is always going to lead you off the cliff. But if you can get back to grasp some of the cultural principles behind it, what you'll find is that that the opposite is happening. God is redeeming something in a wonderful way that's protective and respectful. Let me give you some examples. Deuteronomy 14.21 says, Do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. One command, context doesn't help you. There's nothing else in Scripture written about it. It's all by itself. Do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. While we are not completely sure what's behind it, recent work in archaeology has demonstrated that in uh, Canaanite philosophy or theology, that was a worship practice. That's one of the things they did. They would boil a goat in its mother's milk. Got to remember, in the ancient world, they didn't. Um, uh, they tried to disarm what the gods were saying through a variety of techniques. They had to make it up because we now know the gods are dead, but they didn't know that. And so this was one of their worship practices. So this may very well be a statement: "Don't look like the Ishmaelites." By the way, this happens in Nepal. Um, the Nepalese Christians refuse to be cremated. Not because there's anything wrong with cremation, but because that's part of the Hindu theology. Cremation is the only way to, to be released to the next reincarnation. So they don't find anything theologically wrong with it. They just don't want to look like Hindus. So they choose not to be cremated. Okay? So here's one example where a little bit of cultural wit might give you some stuff. Okay? Maybe think about it. Um, the, pro the phrase, Jesus is Lord. Okay. When we use that phrase, it, it's, it's almost old hat to us. It's so familiar. But if you lived in the first century and you had read the inscriptions placed all around the empire, we now have about 15 of them, I think, something like that, that have been discovered through archaeology, where it was the law that you had to say, Caesar is Lord. Okay, That was a requirement. So this may be a statement that the government, I don't, you know, I'm just using the word may, may be a statement that the government is overstepping its bounds when it comes to deification. And so Paul is, and Peter is introducing, no, Jesus is Lord. You need to understand this too. I don't know if they're necessarily arguing 
that they weren't completely honest with the Caesar, not willing to give him up for it, but they straightened out the truth that they had been raised with. It was on their forums. It was on their descriptions around the empire. Caesar was Lord. And uh, as is true with almost all other religions, the head guy, whoever that is, if it's usually a guy, uh, is represented above the gods on earth. And so you would honor Caesar for doing that through festivals and celebrations and parades all throughout the year. And the Christians weren't necessarily told not to do that, but their, but their theology was straightened out and corrected by understanding Jesus was Lord. Why? Caesar is not a representative of the gods. No, he's not. No, he's not. Jesus is. See a little difference? Subtle difference. Let's look at one in First Peter chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7. Just read it for a moment. Probably familiar with it. For 30 years to get Nancy to call me Lord, it hasn't worked. That's a Greek word for slave. Depends on the context. It's a term of respect like slave. In, in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there's no distinction between the Greek word and slave. So context determines. Okay, so what's Peter? What's Peter talking about here? What's he recommend? Good, spit it out. It's okay. Okay, be examples to your ignorant husbands. That could be one thing. Basically, submit. Don't overlook that little piece. That is the overarching introductory statement, right? Now you're bringing 21st century theology into it. That is a very current Western position. Elise, you listening to this? Submit to your husband. Just want to make sure.
not much in there in the first six verses about that. direction. Think about the cultural background. Remember, this isn't a section on cultural analysis, which we're going to give some practice to. You're going to get a chance to play with this some of the stuff. The, um, in the Roman world, the husband was called the uh, pater familias, the, uh, the father of the family, if you will. The mothers, plural, because we still have polygamy, was called mater familias, the mothers of the family. So you basically had a variety of families under one husband, okay? So <coughs> so one husband, let's say he had a dozen wives, you might have a dozen families under there. And so the husband would pick the religion, or the gods more specifically. The religions were chosen by the government. You had to worship the religions that were sanctioned by the Roman government. And so uh, um, he would pick... That's why, by the way, they got upset with Paul because at, at Nicaea. He's introducing a, a god that the government hadn't recognized yet. He's introducing a new deity here. Whoa, 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 whoa. Nah, you can't do that. Okay? Got a process to go through. So the husband would pick the, the local deities that the families would worship. And then the wives were responsible to, to bring, to fulfill that, uh, to carry out that, directive, that command, if you will, in each of their families. So the wives would set up the worship schedule and the training and the teaching and do all those kinds of things, which wives still kind of do today, <laughs> actually. And um, they were responsible for making sure that the husband's wishes were met. Husband would pick the gods or the goddesses. We are living in a shame and honor context. What that means is... Um, Everything is structured very rigidly and hierarchically. Okay? If you were to bring shame on the one above you, then you could you were there's a whole variety of things that could happen to you from prison to even execution in certain state certain cases, wife or children. Because you were property. Because the man owns the slaves, the wives own the children. So they all belong to the same property. It's like donkeys and bulls and cattle. So um they're just beginning to wrestle with, at this point in history, with women's rights, if you will. Now, that takes place in another part of Scripture. We'll find that wrestling with stuff, but not right here. So if a wife decided, what happens when a wife becomes a Christian? When the husband says, we're going to worship Zeus or whoever, and the wife becomes a Christian, she's in a predicament. If she says to her husband, I, I really can't do that in good conscience, then uh, as a minimum, she's subject to divorce, which means that she's now um, subject to a parental role. Because it wasn't like today. She couldn't just get a job. They didn't have any options available to her. So uh, that's one of the reasons polygamy was so prevalent in the, first in the early in the ancient Near East because it was uncommanded to take men's wives. But um, there's more women than men taking men supporting women. But it's also a statement of patriarchy and how men rule women. So there's that piece to it. So if the wife decided not to 
worship Zeus and to leave your children with the earth means he could be kicked out, he could be he could divorce her, he could he could even potentially have her executed, killed. So she's stuck in a real dilemma, isn't she? Okay, now read this passage and listen to the answer. Wives, in the same way, submit to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, in other words, they're not a Christian, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. He doesn't say anything in here about not following through. He says to submit. To do what the husband has asked you to do. This is protection. He's not asking these wives to stand up and be rebels at the cost of their lives. Because there's a higher redemptive value at work, you might win the husband over. So he doesn't say don't worship those gods. He says the opposite. Submit to your gods. Do what he says. Take care of it. I got your back. That's the answer. Now he goes on. Your duty should not come from outward adornment such as the outer wall. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, your unfading beauty, as a gem for all to see. Now you go back and you look at the dynamics in marriage of the first century. This passage makes a lot of sense. I think that Paul or Peter is giving these wives permission to continue in their families the way they were. Don't worry about it. You know those gods are dead. Don't worry about it. Win them over by who you are. Let the husband look at you and say, I got 12 wives. How come I can't kick them? What's going on over here? Let's reverse the scenario. What happens if the husband comes to know the Lord and the wives don't? That's an awkward situation too, isn't it? Is he going to walk in and say, hey guys, from now on, we're going to worship Jesus. You can no longer worship Zeus. What happens then? Well, you're putting your wives in again in an untenable situation because of their, their place in the family structure. But read verse 7. Look at verse 7. Husbands, in the same ways, in the same way as I've just said to the wives, okay, similarly, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. And by the way, this word partner is not talking about mutual. Um, it's a word that's dealing with function and position. Okay, It's not talking about you're weaker because you're a woman. You're weaker because of the position you find yourself in. That's what it's really saying. In fact, uh, the Holman Christian Study Bible, they're, uh, they're going through and rewriting it right now. And so I, they asked me if I would read it all the way through and give a comment. So I'm giving them feedback every day on things that I think they didn't quite get right or, you know, why'd you say it this way or whatever? And they wrote in there, uh, at this point, treat them with respect as, a, uh, as one of a weaker nature. And I wrote back and I said, seriously? You guys are Greek scholars? This is not that word. And they wrote back and they said, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, somebody just stuck in an interpretation and it was an answer. This is talking about your function, your position. So treat them as someone with res- treat them with respect as someone who is in a weaker position. But who, but, or, and yet, you could say that, they are still heirs. They are still heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. 
So this is the answer to the husband's side of the husband comes in at 11, the wife comes in at 11. And he's just too special to her. See how redemptive this is? All I did is bring just a cultural, some cultural background. If you want, I can Xerox this. I'll work on this and you can see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, that's why I said in the beginning, the Bible's not meant to control pe- people against other people. It's not meant to marginalize. It's meant to invite. So we never intend to believe someone in love. That's the greatest gift that God gave us, is the freedom to choose. It's at the very beginning. And he gives us that every day of our lives, doesn't he? We can choose to sin or not. So you never intend on your children, on other people, not at all. Hmm? Right. Let me ask a let me ask a more modern question so we're jumping downstream. I'll show you how we get there in a minute. Is God opposed to any racial marriage? Okay, so that's not the answer either. Interracial marriage is not the problem. What is the problem? Leading people away from the Lord. So that's why he's talking about here and standing faithful, strong, strong. Early in 1 Peter, he says, be holy, strong, holy. So when you put it in the context of the whole argument, just before this, he talks about slaves who are in the same boat. But with slaves, he says, um, in fact, uh, um, it says wives in the same way. What's the last thing you just said? But if you bear up under unjust punishment, this finds favor with God. Wives in the same way. Okay? Be willing to take it. All I'm doing is is attempting to bring some cultural analysis to it to illustrate how it begins to be life-transforming, life-giving. I mean, picture a woman in the first century who comes to know Christ with no guidance. She knows that Zeus is not real, but she's stuck. If I say no, it may cost me my life. Right? So think about how just Peter steps in and says, okay, let me help you here. That's what re- that's what redemptive means is coming to the aid of someone. The whole the whole concept of redemption is very simple. Someone coming to the aid of someone else who cannot get themselves out of the bind. That's really what it means. It could be financial redemption, it could be any number of redemption, forms of redemption. So redemption is not only about your eternal life, that is significant and part of it, but but your financial redemption is just as important to the Lord, by the way. So, so Peter is coming to their aid and saying, it's okay, it's okay. Win them over by who you are with Christ. So I'm using it as an example of what happens when you bring cultural analysis into a passage. All of a sudden it gains life. Because now you can see what God is doing. 
only if they're being possessed. There's several examples where they're not. But demon possession is not always true. Could be the case of Job. So there are examples in the Gospels where demon possession free was a precursor to the healing, but there's plenty of other cases where it isn't. Who sinned, this man or his parents? He said neither. He's He was like this so that God could be glorified. So, so there is discernment involved. Okay, so do you have enough enough examples to show you how cultural analysis can make a difference? It's important. Okay, so remember the first leg is what does the Bible say? Let's just take a look at the text and the words and figure it out. The second the second leg is what's happening with uh, um, the culture that God is redeeming something. Let's start as Christians with the premise that every time God a- acts, He's redeeming something broken, and let's see if we can figure out what it is that it's redeeming. So even if all you could do is ask the question, and even if you can't figure it out, you're going to start moving in the right direction theologically. Okay? And you'll start coming up with possibilities. You may or may not be right, but at least you're now thinking like a theologian, that God is at work redeeming people and cultures. So let's keep asking the question, and now the passage is, what is he redeeming here? And what he's beginning to redeem here, and these passages are framing, is the oppression of women, the subjugation of women, ownership of women, mistreatment of women, women who are allowed to learn. Those are all little things that are beginning to get turned over on with this with the coming of Christ. Okay, the third one is um, the missional or redemptive analysis. This analysis looks at God's overall plan from beginning to end, and it's asking the question, why did he do it here? Why didn't he do it back there? Or why didn't he do it later? Okay? Why did God reveal the story of creation to Moses in 1600 B.C.? Why not to Abraham 500 years earlier or David 500 years earlier? So what was behind that? So that's asking the question of trends, if you will, the movement of God through history. It It answers the question and helps us make sense of why are some things permitted in one per- period of time but not at another? It also answers the question of where God is leading the redeemed as they develop their sense of ethics. Okay? So how is he working with the redeemed? I mean, with the uh, Israelites, genocide apparently is okay, rape is okay, uh, in their minds anyway. And so God began to accommodate that and transform it. But it took a long period of time. We'll look at some examples of that. Fact, let me give you a couple right now. When you look at the word, when you look at the concept of race, it's mentioned 13 times in the Bible, all in the Old Testament. The Bible never says don't race. Okay? The Bible never says don't have slaves. The Bible never overtly says don't have more than one wife. Okay? But yet we've come to these 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 conclusions today that slavery's wrong, rape is wrong, genocide is wrong. Um, we're not meant to have more than one. How did that happen? 
How do you how do you get there if the Bible never explicitly says it? In fact, in the um, 19th century, the arguments were around the abolition of slavery were biblical on both sides. So how do we get to this position? What do you think? Okay, that's true, but in those four cases I mentioned, the uh, there some of that's happening, but the Bible is never averse in eliminating it. Okay. Okay. But you could, I mean, we could make the case, since we're not a theologian, not a good one. You can make the case that slavery is still it's it's still sanctioned. It's assumed to be true. Paul never says no. He just says if you're gonna if you're gonna have slavery, do it this way. This is the way you should do it. Both Peter and Paul. Okay. But what's that based on? How do you inherently know that? I like that direction, but how do you inherently know that? Well, but Christ's treatment of slaves didn't overcome it either. Right? So we're moving in a good direction here. As, as we mature, we inherently know some things are not true. They shouldn't be true any longer. That's what we're answering here when we're looking at a missional analysis or a missional movement of God, what God is doing in the world, is as he begins to break down immediate cultural values, he also has to break down long-term cultural values. And it takes a long time to reverse cultural values. It doesn't happen overnight. In fact, it almost always never happens completely. I think that's why we still have the healings of the nations required in the New Earth. Because we got we got some work to do to say, no, that really can't be God. Sorry about that. Which becomes a principle that we should all live with, that rather than focusing what we shouldn't do, God really starts highlighting what we should do. So we st- he starts introducing healthy sexual values. Imagine, imagine the shock in the first century world where I'm the husband and I am my wife, and it says the husband's body does not belong to him but belongs to the wife, and the wife's body does not belong to her but belongs to him mutuality. That's what that is. He's saying is submit yourselves to one another. This whole mutual concept was unheard of in the world. It was hierarchy. It was oppressive. And Christianity begins to introduce entirely new values 
that the world had not even conceived him of, hadn't even thought of. Mutuality in respect is one of them. Human dignity in respect is another one. And so as we begin to play with these values, these values begin to trump older cultural values. Well, if mutuality is in, in our sexual life with our wives is really what God is after, then first of all, what does that say about having multiple wives? All of a sudden, we're beginning that dance away from polygamy. Um, that's Then we can come to the conclusion that will become less less, but it also moves away from the, the whole concept of, of um, slavery and the treatment of wives certain ways. It moves us away from your property, and I can treat you. By the way, it doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter what. I can I can rape you any way I want to, male or female. It doesn't matter because you're still my property. But if all of a sudden mutuality and dignity are brought into the equation, then we begin to say, wait a minute, what was wrong what we did? Because how in the world does rape show dignity or mutuality? It doesn't. So all that to say. When you read some scripture from beginning to end, what you see is God introducing positive, redemptive, refreshing language and values that begin to undermine older cultural values. So he doesn't ever have to say, don't rape, because we all of us go, well, of course you're not going to rape now, because now we get it. No, you're not property. You're equal. You're a co-heir with Christ over her. Equal in every way. So, wow, property goes by the wayside, slavery goes by the wayside, rape goes by the wayside, uh, polygamy goes by the wayside. All these things just start to fall away because of introducing new ideas about what is true. Does that make sense? Okay, that's just one example. I want to get more practice in here. Okay, starting next week, I'm going to bring you examples, and you're going to play with other passages. So we're going to spend the next two to three weeks doing the first part that we just talked about tonight, Bible study. And then after the break, we're going to do more theological analysis. And I'll come back and give you more principles with that. And uh, if you want to jump on that, come to the elders. We're already into the second phase with elders. And we're wrestling through complex issues. We're dealing with same sex and sexuality now. We're moving to uh, gender roles in the fall. Uh, what role does women play in our church? terms of leadership and things like that. So we're going to move into those areas. So we're going to spend the first part of the class focusing on these areas that we talked about. And then we'll move into theology and look at now what do we do? Once we've made an interpretation, what do we do with it? How do we make sense of it? Okay. Would somebody like to pray for us?
don't forget to sign up. I, uh, in my classes, I like to send kind of a thought each week out via email with something to think about. So uh, you'll hear from me again.